0: Well, you mamas, I I have to tell you thank you for everything that you do. And some of you know by looking at me that I'm remarkably young. And uh, some of you are young enough to remember what it was like to be my age, you know, back when you know everything. So this first part of my message this morning is for Hayden and Maggie and Jake. You don't know everything. And I heard all the mamas say amen. It took a while for me to realize that even though my mom was not perfect, she was the perfect mom for me. I don't know of any perfect mothers. I don't know of any perfect fathers. Even now as a father, I find myself... Challenge from time to time in the decisions that I make and having regrets. Something about being a parent forces you to learn a whole lot very, very fast. If you have a bulletin this morning, you'll notice that the article on the inside makes reference to Exodus chapter 2, a point in Israel's history where Moses' mother, After she could no longer hide her infant boy because the Pharaoh had um, instructed that Israel was getting too big, they were too much of a challenge, too much of a threat, that it was necessary that any Israelite boys, well, we just go ahead and euthanize them so that Israel would stop becoming so powerful. Moses' mother hid her son for three months until she was no longer able to do that. I think three months is when you start to realize that you know everything. And so that was probably what started causing problems. In my head, I've always had a picture of Moses' mom setting him out in the Nile River. Kind of just setting him adrift. All of the movies I watch, I think Veggie Tales depicts it this way, just kind of setting him out adrift. When I read Exodus chapter 2, instead of going off of what Hollywood is has told me, you find that Moses was set down in the reeds. His mama no longer could do anything to keep him safe. But by faith, she did all that she could do. Being a parent has a lot to do with living a life by faith. I say that by way of introduction because it connects immediately to our text this morning. You'll know that we've been in Hebrews chapter 10, we've been in Hebrews for a while, and now we're coming to a portion of Scripture that exhorts God's people, namely the Jewish saved audience that the author is writing to, to remember days of persecution and suffering. So that they would remember what it means to live by faith and to have endurance and to move forward in all of these things. We talk about faith, we talk about being righteous, we talk about being just, but we still have lives to live. This is the challenge, I believe, of being a parent, of being a child, of being a Christian. No matter where you're at in your Christian walk, the difficulty that we face on this side of heaven is we have lives that have to be lived. That might seem a little contradictory, but the question that we should ask is, what does it mean to live those lives? I believe our text gives us the answer for that. I'd like to read this morning from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, all the way through chapter 11, verse 4. Our emphasis or focus will only be on verse 32 through 39, but I want to be sure that you see, along with me, how all of these things connect. And so with your Bibles open this morning, let us pray, and then we'll read from God's Word. Our Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for your Word. We thank you for your people gathered together. God, we pray that your Word would be received well. God, that our hearts would be soft and ready to receive Your Word and to apply it to our lives. Lord, that You would open the eyes of our heart that we might be able to behold fully the amazing truth that is found in Your law. God, I pray that You would be with us as Your Word is preached. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Beginning in verse 19 then. Therefore, brothers... For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment, And a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was prosanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know Him who said... Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteousness one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that it is seen, was not made out of things that are visible. Our text that we're studying this morning begins in verse 32. And you'll note the first word that we come across, at least in the ESV, or the English Standard Version, is the word but. This is then connected to everything that our author has said before. And this helps us to really understand what the author is trying to unpack here or begin to communicate to his audience. He says, but a contradiction, a pause, changing directions. What is it connected to? It's connected to all of the exhortations that we've just read from verse 19 to 31. The exhortations that we've been studying for two weeks now. That we would hold fast to the truth. That we would draw near to God. That we would consider what it means to stir one another up. Ultimately, that we would understand what a fearful thing it is to fall into the hands of an angry God. But, our author says, with all of these things in mind, why would we need to pause for a contradiction? We have to understand that the people that the author of Hebrews is writing to most likely made a profession of faith. I think there's ample evidence for that. He says in verse 39 that we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. He, he talks in verse 33 of being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, to being partners of those who were ill-treated, to having compassion on those who are in prison. These are saved people the author's writing to. This is a church. Now... Oh. Somewhat a remarkable church in the sense that they did not come from a Gentile background. They were originally Jews who saw the truth and understood that Jesus Christ is the only way into God's promises. He writes then, because I believe things are growing difficult. Circumstances are becoming tumultuous. Painful, tribulation is happening. We have to remember that this is written to the early church in the first century. But, he says, remember the former days. He says, I want you to be sure about your faith because maybe even temptation's gotten a little bit easier. Maybe not temptation, but persecution has dwindled away, and things are becoming easier for you to be a Christian because it's becoming more socially acceptable, and you don't have the Jews persecuting you or the Romans throwing you in Colosseums and feeding you to lions. Maybe things are getting a little bit easier. So, verse 32, Recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggling with suffering. Doesn't that sound like a fantastic encouragement? Hey, I know things are going great right now. Nobody's telling you that you're wrong and and nothing has, has happened to stir you up. And so I want you to think back to those days in your Christian walk when you experienced whatever kind of persecution it was because of your faith. Was it friends rejecting you? Was it being uncomfortable? Was it whatever kind of persecution you faced as a Christian, I want you to think back to that. This is the same author that said that he wants us to grow into maturity in our faith. This is going to help you do that. I want you to think back to rejection. I want you to think back to humiliation. I want you to remember that because that's going to help you. Why? Why? How could this possibly help us? Aren't you supposed to move past the bad things and just keep on going forward? Think about missionaries and, and preachers being trained and, and all of these different people. Shouldn't you just be trained and filled up with all the knowledge of the Word of God and then you just you go and take on a church and, and, or you start a church plan or a mission project somewhere and you just keep going as long as you know the Word of God, everything's going to be fine? No, because we've got a real life to live with real people with real problems and real issues. And people are messy. They have preferences and and they've got privileges. So what happens when you start taking all this biblical knowledge, all this mature meat that you've been chewing on since chapter 6, whenever the author of Hebrews spanked all of us and said that by this time you ought to be eating meat, but instead you're stuck on milk and honey bunch of baby Christians. Well, I've been feeding myself. I've been chomping at the bit. I've been eating the meat. And now things are getting harder because as I grow in maturity of the Word, it seems like I have more zeal for the things of God. And I've got more passions and I'm more convicted about particular doctrines that I thought were interesting. But now they've taken root in my heart. What do I need to do? I need to remember the days... After you were enlightened, when I endured hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. That word publicly exposed, just so we're all on the same page, what our author's talking about. He's talking about the Roman Colosseum. He's talking about Christians being wrangled up in large number, particularly those from Jewish backgrounds, and being brought into the public square, humiliated in public, and put in an arena for lions to consume their body. I need to think back to being partners with those who were so treated. Now you may think that this is some ancient text and I'm glad that we don't have to think about this for much longer. At the national meeting three weeks ago, loved ones, I spent time visiting with a missionary serving in Minamar. I cannot mention their name because this sermon is being recorded. Because persecution in Minamar for Christians is so extreme that if government officials found out what she was actually doing, She would be thrown in prison. We had some missionaries that our church support come and visit us only this past year, serving in India, who have meant hindrances in the ministry because the government is scrupulously looking over every financial record that they bring in because they're concerned about Western influence. If you can't think back to persecution, all you have to think back to is being partners with those who are experiencing such things. Verse 34, I believe it's safe to say that we have compassion on those who are in prison and we joyfully accept the plundering of our own property. Now wait a second. Did you hear what I just said? Do we joyfully accept the plundering of our own property? I don't know about you, but I heard someone in the back row over here say something about the Second Amendment protecting their property. Why would our author tell us as an encouragement to remember these things? Why would he tell us... All of this so that we can remember when things were worse than they currently are. This doesn't seem like much of an encouragement. He moves from telling us to draw near to God, to... Draw near in the faith to stir one another up to love and good works, to be careful that we don't go on sinning, that we would rely on each other to be our exhortation, our community bringing us together so that we would have somebody watching our back when we would make mistakes because the issue of sin is that it causes blindness in us. And then he moves on, and this is supposed to be the encouraging part. This is supposed to be the parts like, hey, I know that was kind of hard to talk about sin and falling into the angry hands of God, but hey, there's some good news coming from this if you'll just remember all that stuff. Remember those people in Myanmar and India. Remember all of those people who are experiencing persecution. Well, he gives us an answer here in verse 34. He says, if you look in the middle, since you knew you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. We had compassion on those in prison and we joyfully accepted the plundering of our property since we knew that we ourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. The answer is right here. The reason we should think back to all of these things Especially when things are going well for us, especially when there's not immediate persecution, especially when we don't feel like we're embarking on our own form of a holy crusade, is because it forces us to remember what got us through such hardships. It forces us to remember that while we were sitting there in prison, while we were being mocked by our friends, while we were being rejected by the people that we love and care about, that our hope was not in that we would receive their approval, that we would receive vindication, that we would be adjourned. Our hope was at the end of our lives that there was a better possession waiting for us. A possession in heaven, a possession of glory. Not just that, but look what he says, an abiding one, a place of rest and comfort. The church, in order to be successful, needs to take to heart the words of Hebrews chapter 10. And that is that our rest and our comfort will not come until we are in the presence of God. And until then, everything that happens to us is a reason to praise Him. If there's blessings, we can praise Him. If there's suffering, backbiting, if there's difficulty... If there's frustrations, we praise Him because it forces us to take our minds and to shift them on the perspective of the eternal. That which we can only observe when our heart is in a right communion and right relationship with God. Verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward." Our encouragement is building up from this image. It builds up from remembering suffering that we would remember what got us through it. And our author is telling us to remember that now. He's telling us to remember that now so that we do not throw away our confidence, so that we do not waver. Sufferings continue. They may seem less. They may even seem to grow stronger. But we have a confidence. A confidence that is established and built up and found in the hope that God has rescued us. A confidence that is not just based in speculation, but it is formed and it is formidable. Because of all the evidences that the author has accumulated up to this point in establishing Jesus Christ as high priest and establishing Him in the actual holy place is no longer a place on earth but the holy place which is in heaven where His sacrifice and His atonement is made by becoming not just high priest but adversary and intercessor, we find that our confidence is secure. We do not have need for rest. I think oftentimes we live our lives and we push through in seasons and it's easy to do this in the church too to say I just need a little bit of rest and then I can restart and we can keep on going. Look at verse 36. You have need of endurance. We do not have need of rest. I I don't understand this idea of Christians wanting to enter the pearly gates of heaven. Well rested. I think you've missed the point of having for ourselves a better possession and an abiding one, a place of actual rest. When I get to heaven, I want to be worn out, fatigued and tired from all the work that I've been able to do. I want to be worn out hopefully bankrupt. Many of us, I think, are planning on going to heaven with full bank accounts and bedhead. We do not have need of rest, we have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Why do missionaries need trained? Why do pastors need trained? I asked the question earlier, let me answer it. Because you take all this knowledge and all this Bible, and this isn't what's going to get you through life. All the knowledge, all the understanding is not going to make a person righteous. It's not going to make a person just. It's not going to make a person live by faith. It's not going to make a person live. Our author quotes from Habakkuk chapter two. Those of you who remember what is going on in Habakkuk? Let me remind you. Habakkuk's a wonderful book because the prophet begins by saying, "Hey God, I've been here for a long time, and um, I thought you were you know, you had said something about." Watching over me and uh, making sure that I didn't endure hardship and protecting me from people who are evil and stuff. So, where are you at? That's the Derek Brimmer paraphrase of Habakkuk chapter 1. God responds, He says, Just wait. The author responds again, God, um, okay, I'll, I'll just wait. I just want you to know that there are evil people everywhere. Literally everywhere. And it's getting really hard to live with all of them. And God responds. That's where this quote's taken from. In his response, God says, Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. Habakkuk 2 verse 4, But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Why is it important that we would remember suffering? Why is it important that we would remember what got us through all of that? Because if someone were to shrink back, God finds no pleasure in him. This isn't a warning of falling away. This is a reminder of the confidence that we have in God. That if we understand these things, it's impossible for us to move backwards. But look at verse, or what is found in Habakkuk 2, verse 4, right here in verse 38 of our text. The righteous shall live by faith. You all have probably heard that before. The righteous shall live by faith. This is one of the most quoted Old Testament passages in all of the New Testament. It appears three times, it's so important. There's not even that many words. My righteous, one, two, shall live by faith. One, two, three, four, five, six. There's six words and it's three times. Half of those are prepositions. Three times in the New Testament this text is quoted, and each time a different word receives emphasis. The first time this text is quoted, it's used in Romans 1:17 by Paul. He puts the emphasis on faith. You want to live? You need to have faith. You want to be righteous? You need to live by faith. Because faith is what hinges us all together. This is actually the direction the author of Hebrews is going to go when we get into chapter 11. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, because this is what pulls it all together. This is what allows Christians to endure suffering and hardship and to become zealous for the Lord. This is what causes the church to have strength. This is what causes our witness to be meaningful, so that it's not some scripted response. and Rather, it's living out what we know about God. Galatians 3.11 is the other text where we find this quoted. Paul, again, writing, but now he puts emphasis on just or righteous. He says the just or the righteous will live by faith. His encouragement here is to be a people of God that pursue God's Word. That you should live justly or righteously in such a way that is in agreement with God's Word because grace is not simply a license for us to run around living our lives however we want. Rather, grace is the means by which our sins are forgiven. Grace is the means by which I'm able to set that life aside so that I can have a relationship with God that pushes me onward so that when I meet Him, whether in His return or in my ultimate death, that I will be tired and worn out for him. Well, if Paul's used two of the words in this passage, if he's emphasized the word faith and he's emphasized the word just, what word do you think the author of Hebrews is emphasizing here? But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back. And are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere, or I'm sorry, and preserve their souls. I believe the author of Hebrews is putting his focus on the word live. This is how we live our lives. This is how we live from day to day, going from moment to moment, recognizing that it's an issue of faith. This is how we navigate the world around us. This is where salvation comes from. This is what our salvation is. The saving of the soul or the to preserve their soul. The King James in verse 39, as we get down there, it says um, the saving of the soul, I'm pretty sure. In the ESV that I'm reading from, my text says, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. I want to explain why the authors of the why the translators of the ESV made that change. Savings, actually not very accurate, because when you hear the word saving, your mind immediately goes to this is how a person is saved. So tyrios in the Greek, but that's not the word that appears here. Instead, what the author is writing about is this is how you navigate life from moment to moment. Your saving, then, is not just in the eternal security of heaven, but your saving is taking place right now. How is it that we're able to live our lives that we would know God? That our souls would be preserved. That that faith that we live by preserves our soul. That we have confidence not to shrink back from whatever may come and destroy us that when God finds us, His soul will have pleasure in us because we did not shrink back. Because by faith we lived and were righteous. See, simply walking that backwards begins to already draw out the point that the author is communicating to us. It's a difficult business being a Christian in today's world. it may not seem like it's a difficult business but it really is if we don't think that it I this might be my youthful arrogance but I I wanna say that's because you're not actually living in the world (coughs) everything's becoming more antagonistic towards truth Christian colleges and universities are experiencing more and more persecution. It's getting harder and harder for them to continue to receive federal funding. Not just college and universities, but missions are becoming more and more difficult to approach. The church is losing its place in society. I say that because I want to ask you if you think we should bemoan, if we should be disappointed with that reality, or if there's another response that the church should have. We could say that it's persecution and we simply need to endure and move on, or as I read our text and I begin to apply this to my life, one of the things that I see is that we had compassion in these situations, and we knew what was coming, and we knew that we had a better possession, and we knew, um, a better possession, and an abiding one looking forward to us. And I say, I think persecution's good for the church. I think sufferings actually a good thing for Christians in this world. Often one of the prayers that I pray for people who I love the most is, God, I pray that you would break them enough. I pray that you would bring hardship on this person enough that they would recognize the sin that they are up against and that their brokenness would cause them to repent and come to you. Some of you are going to stop asking me to pray for you, and that's all right. I'm still going to pray for you. I know in my own life, in order to overcome certain things and different elements, I have had to rely on God, and He has been faithful to break me whenever I was blinded by my own ignorance. He's been faithful to place people in my life who point things out, and I need them to expose sin so that I can live according to God's Word. We all need a friend. This is why, in verse 24, we ha- are instructed to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Persecution's not a bad thing. For the early church, this is actually the secret to the, the church in the first century to their great success. Now you might think that Christians have been around. This whole time, in that as soon as Jesus Christ was resurrected, that he was remarkably popular. It turns out that was not the case. It turns out, when the first century, when the church was beginning to organize, Christians were being thrown in Colosseums and eaten by lions. To be a Christian meant to really sacrifice something. And we read in Acts that the sacrifice of the different people and the different church members, they were selling their entire estates for the means of providing for the church. Those who were able to provided these things and they were caring for them. What does this mean that the church had such a commitment? It means that their faith was real. It means that it was substantial, that they believed not just because it was popular, they believed, despite the fact that they were taking their lives into their own hands in making a confession of faith, being baptized in public, that they were going to endure because they knew what came at the end, thanks to the word of the gospel. The church was pure. You know, the greatest problem that we have in the church today is we call them false converts, right? This is the greatest concern when we talk about revival meetings where there's 5,000 people saved and we say, well, praise God, God. I pray that they get involved in a church and that they get included in discipleship and that their faith continues to grow because if they just raised their hand and said a prayer and went home, I don't think much change happened. That's our concern in approaching a presentation of the gospel in a simplistic way that somebody would misunderstand it. I believe there's hundreds of thousands of these people in the church today who have made false professions of faith. Because that's exactly what happened about 500 years after the church was founded. When Emperor Constantine said that Christianity was no longer a reason to feed people to lions, although in my mind, I kind of struggle finding an actual justifiable reason to feed anyone to lions. But um, I haven't seen it all, so maybe there is a reason to feed somebody to another animal. I think that's kind of strange. But in other news, when Emperor Constantine decided that Christianity would be the public religion of Rome because it was catching on despite persecution, there was an influx of a bunch of different people making professions of faith. And so here's where we find the problem of a false profession a profession that doesn't mean anything, a profession that's not true to the Word of God. People who would come to church simply because it's popular. You know what happened around 500 AD? That's when monasteries started to form because the real members of the church said, I've had enough of this phony baloney business, and they took off and went to the mountainous regions, and they built their monasteries, and that was the Christian community. Every time persecution comes up against the church, there is a dwaning away, and then there's a great resurgence of spiritual vitality. As long as the church would put our focus on what comes in eternity, there will always be the lifeblood of Christ in the church. There will be no suffering. There will be no trial that is too great for us. Because we have in our minds all the glories of heaven. That might sound simplistic. I hope that it does. I'm trying to make it simplistic. The truth is, there's nothing simple about heaven. To think about eternity and to conceptualize what it means to have a better possession. To be in the abiding presence of God. To be reunited with a whole body that is no longer warped by sin in this world. To walk in a grassy field that has no consequence of sin spilled across it. To have the presence of God around you uninhibited by a guilty conscience. To be washed clean. To enter into the promises of God. It is an amazing concept. It is our hope. Is it your hope? This has been the confession of the church. And this is what has endured us. If you are not sure that heaven is your hope, my closing remark this morning is simply this. Heaven is available to all who place their faith in Jesus Christ. Heaven is available to every person who would set aside everything that they think that they know and humbly approach Christ and make Him Lord of their life. By making Him Lord, we're not just saying that I believe that He died and that He was resurrected, but it's something more than that because we're saying, not only do I believe that you died and that you were resurrected, but that you died for a reason. You died for my sins. And you were resurrected so that I might be resurrected with you. And now I'm going to make you Lord of my life, which means you are in control of the decisions that I make. And if you've done that, you have something to rejoice this morning. We'll have a song of invitation, and I'll ask that you would consider these things, that you would consider whether you need to stand and and make sure that Jesus is Lord of your life, or if you need to stand and simply praise God that you are a part of the kingdom. That you're one of those who won't shrink away, but that you are going to have confidence to push on no matter what. That in face of rejection, you're going to share the gospel with your friends faithfully. In the face of disappointment, you're going to turn to the Bible that you might understand the Word of God for yourself. Would you stand with us as we prepare to sing?